Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Catherine May, author of Wintering and Enchantment. And this is How We Live Now, a podcast that looks for pathways through this post-everything world. Each season, we ask a range of wise people a common question and roam around in the breadth and depth of our knowing. How We Live Now is made possible by my brilliant community at Substack. For newsletters, book clubs, live hangouts and ad-free episodes of this podcast, go to katherinemay.substack.com. Welcome to How We Live Now. I'm Catherine. This is the penultimate episode of this season of How We Live Now. And I got the chance to talk to Marie-Olyn von Heemstra, who is Amsterdam's Poet Laureate. So I'm very honoured to have a Poet Laureate on the podcast. That's so fancy. But she's also written a wonderful book about the overview effect, which is the idea that came to us from the first astronauts in space and how they described looking back on the planet and having their whole lives recontextualised. And they often came back with a sense of mission to look after the planet much better. They'd seen it all and they'd come to understand it as a vulnerable thing rather than something that is normally so big it's invisible to us and therefore we forget to care about it. Anyway, I'll let Mary Lynn describe it better. But I have to say in advance, I'm afraid there's a couple of little sound glitches in this week's podcast recording, which are entirely my fault. And I'll tell you why. Because my microphone stand broke a couple of weeks ago. And I've always hated the damn thing anyway. It always kind of got in my way and kept overbalancing and I kept bumping into it. And on the first day that it broke, I had to improvise and hold the microphone in my hand. And I quite liked it. 
And so I've been holding the microphone in my hand ever since. And basically that means that the cables come loose and I'm wobbling it. So I've just ordered myself a new microphone stand. So hopefully that won't happen again, I'm sorry. But I didn't want to lose this wonderful interview, which I hope you'll enjoy very much. See you at the other side. Marjolaine, welcome to How We Live Now. It's lovely to have you. Thank you. I was reading that you are poet laureate in your country. Is that right? That's like the, you know, most prestigious title we've ever had. Well, it would be if it was a country, but I am a poet laureate of the city I live in. So Amsterdam. Yes, yes. That's that's pretty cool though. I it's think. very nice to do. It's a great job. Yeah. What What kind of things do you have to do? So you always write whenever there is a memorial day or something big is happening in the city or someone passes away that is important to everyone living here. But I try to write a lot about the natural green Amsterdam, so the glowworms oh, and the birds and the other inhabitants of the city. Oh, how lovely. Yeah, that's sort of my hookup in this. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to do. And I always sort of feel slightly sorry for the British um, laureate because they have to mark royal occasions and it always seems oh. like, I know, it always seems like <laughs> such dry material, you know, to, yes, I don't know, someone's given birth to their third child and you have to commemorate <laughs> in poetry. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. Well, you know, sometimes yeah. I have hard assignments like that as well when it's yeah. a little bit dry, but it's also really a challenge for your writing to be mm. able to still find poetry in something that you would never think in a poetic way about. So. Yeah, it forces you into that. Oh, well, I just wanted, I couldn't resist asking that just to open up because uh, mm-hmm. I think it's such a cool thing. So this season on How We Live Now, we're thinking about a key question, which is how can we re-enchant this world? Yes. And I got sent a proof of your book uh, in Light Years, There's No Hurry of quite a few months ago now. Mm-hmm. And you came to mind immediately because you talk about something called the overview effect, don't you? Um, Yeah, so it's this experience that um, many astronauts have when they are in space and they look back on Earth and they suddenly see what we actually know all the time, that everything is connected, that Earth is just this one organism floating through space and we are all small parts on it. But I mean, just knowing it is something different than experiencing it. And I think that's what most astronauts uh, do when they look at Mm. Earth from this very big distance. And usually it comes with a feeling of, of love and responsibility, sometimes also anger at the way we treat this, this little organism that we are part of. And what you see is that many astronauts, not all of them actually, but many of them come back as ambassadors for something uh, like certain animals or sea life or you see something, it's like a, a mental shift looking at earth from a very big distance, suddenly you feel much closer to it. So sort of the distance creates this uh, feeling of proximity, which is a funny paradox, I think. And it, yeah, it sort of awakens this uh, consciousness. Wow. And I I was really struck by that in your book, the, the image of these astronauts coming back with this real sense of I mean, I'd, I'd say ecological purpose almost. It seemed mm-hmm. to, that seemed to be the common thread. They often did different things with that or expressed it in different ways. But something about that experience had really made them understand that the planet was a thing to to take care of, I, I suppose. Yes, to cherish and, and mm. to love. And, and also that you're so fundamentally part of that you could never see yourself as only an individual anymore. Yeah. But is it possible to capture that from standing on the planet itself and looking at a photograph of that? I mean, do you have to travel into space in order to experience that? No, I don't think so. And and I know that many astronauts who, who have been there and have experienced it would agree with me. Um, we have our own astronaut here in Holland and he is... Uh, He just did a big interview on this whole new concept of space tourism. Mm. And um, of course, these billionaires say that uh, space tourism 
is good for giving people this overview effect and making them aware of the uh, precarity of the earth. But I think that's really a form of space washing, actually, because as our astronaut also said, it's not necessary to really travel all the way out there. It's just a very quick way to uh, experience it. But you can have the same experience here, looking at sunset, uh, taking your time, trying to, you know, maybe people find the same interconnected feelings through meditation or, well, in many other experiences, I think, echo this experience that astronauts have in space. Yeah. Is it something you'd ever be tempted to do to actually go into space? Because you've, you know, you've written so eloquently about how important space is to you. And I want to ask you about that in a moment. But seeing as we've raised the subject of space tourism, is that something you'd ever do? No, actually at the moment, no. I'm very critical of all the developments in space and the Mm. commercialization and the all these private companies going up there. I think this is, it's so polluting and it's so, it's such a way of just consuming an experience that should be, I think, very carefully prepared and very, so in the way that you can go now, I would not join. No. Yeah. I can't imagine doing it either. I mean, I, on one hand, I think it's just terrifying, honestly. And I just don't think I've got the, yeah, it is. It's it's still risky, Yes, but it, it seems to me to be, pretty environmentally destructive Again, totally. at this point in time maybe that'll change but also I don't know like I I look at these tech bros you know who seem to be so keen on dominating space yes but I just think like how can we go and repeat that behavior that very colonial behavior all over again like we must know by now that it's yeah. not the way to do it it's it's really ridiculous that even the way they talk about it is uh echoes this colonial thought of colonizing space and the final frontier and things like that. Yeah, I think it's very worrisome that these people sort of um, decide what the narrative is in space at the moment. Mm. And and probably more and more in the future. Yeah, and it is going to be decided by very very rich people, by billionaires, yes. isn't it? Like we're not doing anything to to combat their their dominance. And no. I find that so disturbing. I mean, I I read a little about the I can't remember which of the tech billionaires it was, but who'd suggested that they could found colonies on Mars or wherever based on indentured labour from people who couldn't afford the trip. So Mm. if you wanted to join this colony, but didn't have the however many million you'd need to do it, that you could then essentially sell yourself into servitude for (laughs) a generation. (laughs) And it's like, are you serious? That's such a horrific idea. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but I yeah. constantly think that everything they say or tweet, I think this this must be a joke. You know, the way Jeff Bezos was thanking uh, all his uh, personnel on Earth for making this possible, while we all know how he treats, you know, how people are treated at Amazon yeah. and there, it's it's just it's so ridiculous. You you cannot possibly think that people take it seriously, and yet they do, and they they even applaud it. It's yeah. crazy. I know we are deeply enthralled to those people, but that's not what your book is about. Your book is about no. much more beautiful <laughs> things. It was just irresistible to talk about that. So, I mean, let's begin with your personal connection to gazing into space and to thinking about space. Where did that begin for you? Well, I think my fascination for space really comes from a fascination for things I don't understand. So Mm. I don't really remember necessarily looking up all the time when I was young, but I do remember having many, many questions about time, about uh, the beginning of life, uh, why we are here, uh, where we're going, uh, about God and creation and all those things. And I think Mm. for me, uh, space, it it holds all the answers. Um, And so that's what my fascination comes from mostly. And I studied religious science. So you have a lot of cosmology. You you learn about all different forms of Mm. cosmology and different religions. And that also interests me uh, a lot. And so, yeah, it's more from the perspective of the larger story than the real sort of physics, physically interesting stars or black holes, even though they are very interesting. Yes. I mean, it's interesting, but it's not necessarily the thing that draws you there. No. And you begin your book by talking about the brokenness or the broken nature of of the current world, this impending doom that we're all beginning to feel, the global warming, the ecocide, the destructions of forests, you know, and the sinking feeling you have. Mm. 
I mean, how hot is your summer at the moment? How is how are things for you right now, and how are you feeling about that? Um, well, today was quite a cool day, and it's interesting that since a few years, I think a lot of people also around me were were very aware of the weather, much more mm. than five or ten years ago. So everyone knows exactly how dry it is, or you know what kind of rain we need. And here, our spring has been quite okay. We've had some really hot days. But then we've also had a lot of rain, which was very important because as so many countries, it's become so, so dry. Uh, yeah. We have all these fields of grass. We, we, I, I don't remember that from my youth. I'm very sure we didn't have it before, that everything is just yellow. And yeah. that's such yeah. a, you see the whole landscape change in just a few years. And that still shocks me. Mm. Um, and also the how slow we are to act upon it. So you know that there's much more awareness. And at the same time, the mowing, is that the right English word? How yes, that's right. That's yes. absolutely right. Yeah, so yeah. The, the way the municipality here in Amsterdam, which is quite a green leftist city still, yeah. but the way yeah. they mow everything away because they have these contracts with certain people, you know, and to change these contracts takes about seven years or so. Mm. And you think like, how is it possible that you see everything change and it's so hard to act Um, accordingly. So yeah, yeah, that sort of depresses me at the same time. I feel so many more people are standing up and there's so much movement at the moment and there's really much more awareness, which makes it, yeah, also a very exciting time because finally something's happening. There are possibilities. There, There are, yeah. The thing that's often on my mind is this, this kind of frustration really with, as you expressed, like we know exactly what's happening. It's so well established. It's clear with the environment. And yet nobody is doing anything. And I mm. I find the inaction just overwhelmingly frustrating. That's the thing that I just don't understand, like how we cannot yet agree to take action. No, I feel that all the time. What I also feel is that I know it's a total cliche, but Mm. that every day you live is this one day you have. So I don't want to be overwhelmed all the time with this very depressing, anxious feeling, even though I see everything around me changing. And and we are in big trouble here as well in Amsterdam. It's so low and, you know, we have a lot of trouble with the water. And so, you know, many of my friends are already thinking, where are we going to live? And, you know, talking about maybe buying land in Sweden or Norway. And that's, that is very unsettling. And at the same time, yeah, what, what gives me joy really is all these people that are aware and that are able to find each other. And I remember when I was young, I had these exact same feelings, looking mm-hmm. at all these cars, looking at the destruction, looking at the way people treat the planet, the animals, and not finding any resonance. Yeah. I mean, my parents were, were quite activist, but still there was no, the hopelessness that I used to feel as a child for the way people treated the world. I didn't see it mirrored anywhere. So yeah. I always had the feeling, okay, this must be me. Maybe I'm just crazy or too sensitive. And now 30 years later, I suddenly see it mirrored everywhere. And that, it makes me feel so much less alone. Mm-hmm. And that really helps. So in a way, uh, I feel better, even though the situation is much worse. Do you know what? I totally agree with you. I, I was the same. I was a very environmentally aware teenager, I think, probably more than child. You know, I was a vegetarian mm. from the age of 11 and I was a member of Friends of the Earth. And I was, you know, just very, very concerned about all of these issues. And it felt like such a niche belief then back in the 80s yes. and early 90s. Like you really did feel like you were some kind of wild eccentric who mm. nobody listened to. And now, I mean, it's pretty commonplace. And I think it's very easy to notice the minority of people who are fighting very hard against that belief because they they do, unfortunately, I mean, I don't know about in your country, but unfortunately, some of them have very big platforms and loud voices. And No, it's the same everywhere, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that what I always wonder about is what what happened in the 90s, because, you know, I was a teenager then. And and if you look back at it now, it's very clear that that was sort of the exact time that we should have started this huge change Mm. and this energy transition. And if we had done it then, we wouldn't have been in such huge trouble now. And I keep trying to to sort of reconstruct that era and also the zeros, we call them, like from 2000 to 2010, when there was hardly any activism. There was hardly, there was so much, it was all about flying and consuming and 
And I, I keep trying to process in my mind like, what, whatever happened also to the generation of my parents, you know, who were so activist and so. And then it seems like for 20 years that disappeared from the mainstream, at least. Of course, there were patches of people uh, fighting very hard, but it was not not in my surroundings. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point, because I think I often look back at those times and think about how optimistic we were. You know, we had this real sense that loads of society was getting better and that we were winning. But looking back, uh-huh. we were actually partying, flying everywhere. Yeah. And maybe Losing. a little bit. Yeah. But also in retrospect, we were maybe a little bit too smug too soon about yes. how much of the battle had been won, because now so much of that seems to politically be rolling back all of these yes. things that we took for granted. You know, we thought that gay rights were on the rise and that that was pretty much uncontested. And abortion. we thought yeah. abortion, racism, like I, we mistakenly thought we'd won. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, I have some regrets, honestly, about about how I spent my 20s now. Yeah, I have the same thing that I Mm. I feel like we've sort of missed a few boats over there. Yeah, and now we're running to catch up. So it's interesting because I think, you know, there's a lot of similar components to both of our recent books. And one of them Hmm. is the importance of awe and how you can come to feel that regularly and, and kind of tune into it. Yes. Tell me how you view awe. What's, what do you see it as and how do we access it? Well, I think for me, it's a way to counter the feelings of alienation. So mm. I think we feel so alien in this time because all the connections with the world around us have been cut off for a big part. So you don't even know how your bread is made or or where your water comes from exactly. Or So all these things you use, you, you don't know the source And if you don't know their source, you don't know what language they speak, and then you cannot actually have a conversation with the world. So everything is silent because you don't understand it. And this feeling of awe for me is is really this counter to this alienation that suddenly the world speaks to you again. And Mm. um, you feel that you're in conversation, of course, not in literal language, but in, in this language of, well, I don't know, consciousness or soul or that something is speaking to you and and you are answering yeah. and uh, and there is this flow of conversation going on. That sense of disconnection, I think, is so important for us to understand, you know, the sense that... I wouldn't know how to make most of the things in my house. I mean, not even... I don't even mean make them myself. I don't know how they were made. Like, I'm looking at my computer screen at the moment and I'm thinking... I don't know how that's made. I haven't got the first mm, idea. Yes, yes. And yes. You know, if I lost access to a shop to buy one, I would never have one again. Like, I, no. you know, and yeah. that's a sense of a deep alienation and disconnection that yes. is so historically recent. You know, it might have been even, I don't know, 80 years ago, I guess that must have began because before then, even if you couldn't make it yourself, you could see how it could be done. And yes. And a neighbor could make it or, you know, someone close by. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And and also I think that the disconnection with, for example, the stars that I write about in my book, I write a lot about light pollution. Mm. We have one of the most light polluted countries in the world uh, here in the Netherlands. And if you think about how recent that is, that for Mm. hundreds of thousands of years, people have looked up and found their way by looking at the stars and, and finding this awe and it's a source of our science and poetry and and all these spiritual traditions. And then in two, three generations, it has disappeared. So yeah. that's another connection that we are not able to make anymore. And I think because it somehow disappeared slowly enough not to actually be aware of it, it hasn't been on the radar for such a long time. But the loss is so gigantic if you think about mm-hmm. what it meant for humanity to look up what it has given us and now it's gone and i cannot wrap my head around it <laughs> like yeah. how big this yeah. loss how big is and loss how little is. Yeah. we talk about it yeah and 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 part of the loss is the ability to hold that very lightly you know this simple relationship with the stars that yes our grandparents took for granted just being able to see the stars in the night sky yeah. and having a familiarity with that and naming a few constellations and understanding mm-hmm. how they moved yeah. And now we have to make such effort to really see them. I mean, I, we have okay stars here in Whitstable. 
Yeah, I can imagine in that in England yeah. there's you have a bigger country, it's easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I think we're gradually turning off road lights. Uh, mm. It seems like we're we're dialing back from over street lighting. But I can't see all the stars. Like I can see the brightest ones. I certainly can't see the dimmer ones. And I think I've never had that sense in my lifetime of being able to look up to the sky and see like that kind of freckling of stars across the sky, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you see in very dark places. Like that yeah. is, that feels so remote to me and I don't even know how to miss that, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's just yeah. never been there. Yeah, exactly. That's the the baseline shifting syndrome, I suppose. We'll return to the episode in just a moment, but How We Live Now is part of a community and I wanted to recommend another podcast that I think you'll love. If you're the type of person who's constantly searching for your own path to a satisfying and fulfilling life, check out Reconsidering, a podcast that features some amazing thinkers who've gone deep on life's most challenging questions. Co-hosts Meredith Black, Bob Baxley, and me, Aaron Walter, speak with New York Times bestselling authors like Dan Pink about the power of regret to help you make smarter decisions, and Oliver Berkman about the absurd brevity of life, just 4,000 weeks on average and how to let go of what doesn't matter so you can focus on what does. If you're looking for the best place to dive into reconsidering, we humbly suggest starting with episode 8, in which we talked with Catherine May about the power of rejuvenation in the winter passages of life. We hope you'll check out Reconsidering, the show about living a satisfying life filled with meaning. You'll find Reconsidering anywhere you subscribe to finer podcasts or by visiting reconsidering.org. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. But you write a lot about your neighbour in your book. Yes. Tell tell us his role in this. (laughs) So in my book, what I try to do is experience this overview effect that the astronauts have, but then on Earth. So my question Mm. was, how can I find this huge sense of connection that I miss so much in this difficult time? How can I find it by traveling this planet as if I am a space traveler? Because of yeah. course we are always in space because Earth is in space, so yeah. <laughs> we are constantly in space. And I thought if I just realized that enough, I might get close to that astronaut experience. And then mm. um, in the book, I, I, I look up and I talk about all these people who who do research, uh, planetary research, or preparing Mars missions or stuff like that. But then the more I looked up and the further away I traveled in my story the more I realized that this feeling of belonging that the astronauts have is also Mm. really about the ground that you inhabit and this small patch of of Earth that you live on. So while looking up and writing about the universe, I started to also really look down. And the first thing I see when I look down, because I lived in this apartment, it was the second and the third floor. So I share this really tiny front yard with my neighbor and he's always in the, in the garden. And I look down from my window, I see him. So I was thinking, is he before we carry on? Is he a little older than you? Yes. He's now he's 80 actually, 
But he yeah. looks much younger. He, he wants me to say that. <laughs> you have to tell yeah. <laughs> it's very vital. <laughs> and we share this, this really, it's, you cannot even call it a garden. It's like 10 square meters. But still, mm-hmm. this is what we share. And, and he represents a total different Amsterdam than me. Uh, right. I was born here, but still, you know, I'm a different generation, but also we have two jobs. We can afford all these things that yeah. this neighbor cannot afford. He grew up in extreme poverty uh, in the war and he is, well, from a total different background than I mm. am. Mm. Um, and in a way, in our neighborhood, gentrification is a huge problem, as in many big cities. Yeah. And I am the face of gentrification in my neighborhood because everything I represent, you know, what I what I sure. earn, yeah. what I buy, yeah. what I eat. And he is the face of this, the people that have been in this neighborhood for such a long time. Mm. And I thought if I write about bridging gaps, if I write about interconnectedness, uh, about countering feelings of alienation, then I should also write about this neighbor that I walk past every day and we are in two different universes in a way. And so I felt like this thing on earth had to be part of my story about the universe. And um, I tried to sort of um, lure him into my story (laughs) (laughs) and uh, talked a lot about with him about the universe and his memory of the stars and well, how he looks up and what he's feeling when he's looking up and also try to figure out what he needs to feel good in a neighborhood that is more and more alien to him because so many Mm. people like me are coming in. So I try to also maybe counter his alienation by trying to feel what he needs. And then yeah. we really developed our front uh, garden together and we made it into this little urban jungle. And um, yeah, it, it meant a lot to me that he wanted to be part of that story. And we made a, a theater show out of it and he came, I think I played it 40 times and he came 25 out of 40. <laughs> oh, he always wow. <laughs> he always ran onto stage when there was the applause and um <laughs> So it was really nice to collaborate with him on this. And I think it's so important if you talk about climate, if you talk about this eco-anxiety, things that, you know, a lot of people who feel this, they are able to feel it because they have time to feel this. They don't have stress over other things in general. I'm not saying it's like that old because, of course, if you live in the global south and you are confronted with it's a total different story. But yeah. here in our cities, I think, the most people that feel this are people that are quite well off. And I think it's very important if you put your time and energy into sort of healing this, Mm. then you should also try to heal something else. And that is the people who don't even have time to think about this. Yeah. Who don't have the opportunity. Yeah. Because they're stressed out and they, they're trying to survive. So for me, it was very important to to join Included. those two stories. Yeah. yeah. He made me think of my lovely neighbour, who is very similar, a little younger, but she's lived in the houses that we, we have like two adjoining houses and she's lived there since she was a child. It was her parents' house first. Mm-hmm. She knows the house back to front. Um, you know, she grows most of her own vegetables. She takes care of everything. You know, she brews her own beer. She's, uh, you know, and compared to us, like lives on beans, you know, like we, I always feel so excessive compared to the way she lives, but you know, that's her very happy life. But these people are a repository of knowledge that my generation just don't have about how things are made, how to repair them, how to take good care of them, how to preserve them. It's such a different way of seeing, I think. Yeah, and that was also one of my, the things that interests me so much about Bob, my neighbor, is how good he He is. He had to be called Bob. It's the perfect Uh, name for him. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is really, he's a, he's a hundred percent Bob. Yeah. If you look at him <laughs> and, um, but he, he's so good at repairing. He would never throw anything away. So that's also something that for me fitted so much in the story because the book is so much about how to live with this attitude of repair and try to ask yourself with everything you do, does this create repair or does it damage, do right. damage? And I think you're you're very right that from these people, there's so much to learn about living so, in a so restorative way. Yeah. Yeah. As you've just said, I spend a lot of my time hand-wringing about the environment and worrying mm. about it and, you know, talking about my worry about it. Yeah. But I 
definitely live in a more wasteful way than she does and yeah. than Bob probably does mm-hmm. and than my grandparents certainly did, you know, and I, yeah. I often look on the day that the bins are collected, that's the day that I get consumed by guilt because I see how full <laughs> my bin is compared to how yes. full her bin is. And yeah. sometimes like my bin is full, so I'm sneaking bin bags into her bins so that the waste <laughs> collectors will take To give it. some of the guilt to your name. Yes, I'm like spreading them out because otherwise they won't take all my bin bags. And yeah. I think, you know, I'm ashamed, honestly, when I see it, when I see how lightly she touches the world mm-hmm. compared to the way that, that I do. Yeah. And I think that's forgotten a lot, you know, that we, there are so many fingers are pointed all the time at people who maybe not join the, the mm. action against the climate yeah. crisis. Yeah. But then, uh, yeah, I have a neighbor here also who is like sort of anti all the action, but he never flew in his life, you know, then. Right. So yeah, I don't know who's more of a climate activist, actually. Yeah. That makes loads of sense. One of the things that really struck me as I was reading through In Light Years, Mm. There's No Hurry was the poetry of how we've named space. Like I felt like that was a real glimpse of our desires around it and and our imagination that we put onto it. Like particularly the moon and all the places. I mean, the the sea of tranquility is a really familiar one, which is just such a beautiful thing to name this I don't know, fairly desolate spot floating in space. Was that something that inspired your kind of poet's mind? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I've always been so inspired by by all those space names, but also by all this research. You know, I would go to the European Space Agency for readings that were actually meant for all the people working there. And I would not understand anything because I'm not a very, yeah, we call it beta mind. If Mm. you if you study a physics or a chemistry or all these things I, I don't know nothing about, but then they would talk about fingerprints of light, for example. Mm-hmm. And then just these words together, well, my mind would really start flowing, just listening to the combination of words they used. And it was funny because I was there as a poet and as someone just listening to the words they put together. And then these people were actually understanding what the story was about. But I also thought while being there that it's such a shame that the way people talk about the universe is either in a very uh, physicist ways or technical way, or, you know, really explaining the natural phenomenon of it, or it is in a spiritual way or maybe a poetic way. And, And these two these two vocabularies, these two ways of talking, they never really meet. Mm. And I think that's really a big loss because I it took me years to find the courage to write about space being a poet because I thought, you know, what do I know of gravity? I'm going to jump in and correct you. <laughs> yeah, I cannot understand. I don't, I cannot explain gravity or I cannot explain yeah. a black hole, but I think I can understand it on a different level. And that was what attracted me so much to it. And then mm. I, I really wrote the book that I wanted to read through a poet's eyes on space. And I, I found what I really was so interesting that many of the scientists who studied space, the, the ones that interest me most are people who are also either uh, religious or uh, poets. So okay. you have quite yeah. some astronomers who are poets at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there is, I mean... It's hard to talk about space without reaching for metaphor or for an image that tries to summarize the the intensity of feeling that we have, but also the the kind of fears too, the sense of it being this very unknown space. You know, we don't know mm-hmm. if anyone else is out there. We don't know if we could ever survive there. We don't really see it as anything but maybe a last resort that we're lining up if we destroy everything here and that it, yeah. it's a it's a very complex kind of idea I think. But if you look at space does it does it scare you? Well that's an interesting question because it used to so when I was a child we did a school project on space and someone gave me a book about the mysteries of space or something I think it was the mm. wrong book and it terrified me like oh really the I- yeah so first of all the idea of infinity mm. totally blew my mind like in all the wrong ways like I didn't I didn't like it and it frightened me Mm. and then also there was a chapter about the possibility of extraterrestrial life and I then became afraid of looking up 
into the sky because I was afraid I'd see a UFO. <laughs> oh and no. That, uh, yeah. And it lasted for years, like this absolute sense that to look into that zone mm-hmm. was to risk seeing something that would change me so profoundly that I'd never yeah. be able to recover from it. Mm-hmm. And you'll be glad to know that's worn off now. But yeah, that was that was very real for me for quite a while. Yeah. And I, I think because I underestimated when I wrote the book that quite some people are afraid of space. Oh, really? So yeah, you've heard that a lot vastness. of the vastness. Yes, mm. yes. And uh, really don't feel comforted by the idea of infinity and the idea of not knowing. Mm. Well, I, I feel so much comfort when I know that I do not understand something. Yeah, well, as, as I've got older, it's felt more comforting. And it's actually, it's that kind of sense that you're not the centre of the universe is becomes yes. good when you're older. Yeah, Because it true. feels like it sometimes in a really bad way. Like it's suddenly mm-hmm. quite nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, so maybe it's also just a midlife thing to look at. Uh, look up. <laughs> yeah, to start to want to feel small rather than mm-hmm. to, to yeah. want to feel big in the world. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't small. I don't worry about seeing UFOs anymore either. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Oh, I would love to see a UFO. I know. Now I'd be like, ooh, what's that? Can't wait. Yeah. I was obviously quite an incurious child. I don't know. No, but it is scary. Of course, it's very scary to this idea, what you say, that you see something that would change you forever. And how would you live with that? How would you tell other people? Yeah. Well, I've read a lot since about how for our generation, the idea of aliens was con- was kind of a, a stand-in for our fear of Russia and mm-hmm. our fear of like a nuclear war, essentially, which yeah. was definitely something that was on my mind a lot when I was a child. Like I've, yeah. I've got this yeah. very early memory of a dream of being on my school football field and a nuclear warhead kind of flying past. Hmm. And I must have been six or seven when I had that dream, you know, and so that fear was really yeah. in me even then. And I think that situation's become a lot more complicated all over again, hasn't it? And uh, I wonder if we'll begin to fear things coming from the sky again a little bit more. Well, you do see that in, in how, the more people are distressed, the more mm. people see things up in the air. Right. That it's interesting that UFOs or UAPs, as they're called now, have become such a new a topic. Yeah. Uh, it's written so much more about it and people are so much more interested in it. What, so, does, what does UAP stand for then? I don't uh, know that Unidentified... Right. Aerial phenomenon, (laughs) because they thought, yeah, it's exactly the same as a UFO, but uh, they said the UFO is now, uh, how do you say that, tainted? The term? Okay, yeah. It's uh, contaminated? No, no, tainted uh, was probably, yeah. Oh, tainted, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because people, um, you know, they associate it with being a a bit weird or... Right, and and sort of conspiracy theory and and, and sort of eccentric people rather than the scientific investigation into whether something's there that makes exactly sense. yeah mm. but now these uaps are all over the place again so that's it's a very interesting development actually that's fascinating what does it mean it? that that people see this again and that they're interested in it again so We've come maybe around you... to these more apocalyptic times again yeah mm. i guess yeah yeah. I don't want that to happen. I, I, I want it to, can we be back to the noughties again and, you know, flying <laughs> off for weekends and having a really yes. nice time? Like Thinking I want to everything is going great. Yeah, But it is a very good. interesting time, isn't it? Because you have so mm. much questions that you wouldn't have if you would be still in the nineties or the zeros. No, that's like right. how, how bad is it actually to die out as a species? Mm-hmm. That's a question that I, I've been thinking about a lot. I, d- I don't know. And that also comforts me in a way that I think, well, maybe, you know, dinosaurs yeah. died out. You have all these these tech billionaires well, saying we have to go to another planet to save our species. But yeah. how generous would it be to just die and say, well, let's see what comes after. And I often think actually about Neanderthals who dwindled and died out, you know, and all of us carry Neanderthal DNA. Yeah. And so we... You know, we we have we are connected to a humanoid species that has died out, that has yeah. faced its own demise, and I I've always been curious about what that felt like to them. Yes. Like, how aware of it were they, and how did they make sense of it? Mm. Yeah, part mm. of us is still that died out species. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, let's end on a slightly more positive note. Yes. <laughs> we've we've sure. journeyed to a to a fairly desolate place, but um, I'd love to ask you just to close about your night watch group and the idea of night activism. It mm. seems like it's become a real rallying cry in your in your neighbourhood. Yes. Well, actually, yeah, all over the city now. Yeah, that's a really a project that gives me so much energy and hope also, actually. Mm, mm. So we have these, we do night walks more and more. We now have five locations and I have five night watchers, we call them, who take people out into the dark, which is relative dark in the right. Netherlands, in Amsterdam especially. But we found the most darkest places in the city and we do night walks. And in these walks, we talk about, well, about the things that we lose, but also about our power to restore stuff and how close by the world feels at night. Because I think in the dark, the world feels so much more intimate. Mm. And um, it's lovely because it's it resonates so much. And every time I'm so surprised that the walks are sold out immediately and there's all these people from teenagers to into their 70s, they join us just walking in silence through these tiny sort of excuse for forests we have here in the Netherlands and trying to see night nocturnal animals and being very quiet and going through space as an animal ourselves because you walk very careful, you don't see anything, you're completely, well, you really have to surrender to your surroundings. And I think that quite some people need that in this time, this feeling of surrendering to the world, not being on top of things, disappearing, Mm. trying to hear something that would otherwise be unheard because the city makes so much noise. But these places are sort of quiet patches in the city. And um, for me, these walks are very restorative. And also because you come so close to everything you meet, from trees to the other people. You don't see their faces, but they are there. Well, there's just this, all this energy <laughs> going around. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's very nice. And, and we've been searching glowworms with a lot of people here now in Amsterdam, oh. which is also a very hopeful way of uh, moving through the night finding these little lights and they're still there. They're still um, there and we don't see them. You know, we do, we've lost our faith in darkness. We've lost our trust in darkness. You know, we need to make friends with that again, I think. Yes. And Mm. then especially what what I noticed, I think I made more than 200 night walks now. And I noticed that when you start doing it, you walk through the night looking for light because that's what you do. You know, if you're in the dark, you think, okay, where's the light? Where do I have to go? But if you stop looking for the light, then you can actually see the dark and then you can learn how unbelievably rich the darkness is. Mm. And that's also when we found the glowworms very unexpectedly because they're very rare here in the Netherlands. I think they have a a tough time all over the world, but here in the Netherlands, there are hardly any left, especially Mm. not in our surroundings. And then I walk into the city forest just around the corner. And the first thing I see is this rare species in a time of mass extinction. Just because I wasn't looking for the light, I was just sort of trying to stumble through the dark. And and that was for me such a big lesson uh, that I'm still learning it every time I go into the dark. And it's so great to share that with so many people now. Oh, well, I love it. I think it's a really inspiring idea and uh, it's been amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your deep knowledge and enthusiasm today. It's been wonderful. Thank you. I hope I wasn't too grim about (laughs) dying out. Um, (laughs) Not in any way. Okay, well, that's great. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Marilyn. Her book is called In Light Years, There's No Hurry. And I think you'll really love it if you found space fascinating over the course of your life. There's something very childlike about our relationship to space, I think. We spend a lot of time thinking about spaceships and astronauts when we're children. Ah, I just hit a muddy bit. Ugh, that was disgusting. (laughs) Well, you'll now know that as I'm talking, my feet are squelching. Another very childhood experience. But yeah, this book invites us to reacquaint ourselves with that, that wonder that we feel when we think about 
these very, very distant, inaccessible places that most of us will never see for ourselves, but which have informed so much of the way we think about the world in the 20th and into the 21st centuries. And I, for one, always find it so hard to believe that we'd never seen the planet as a whole until the 1960s. I don't know. It seems like such a fundamental viewpoint that is so, so familiar in my lifetime. There's another jellyfish. But it's not. It's a new thing. And maybe that's a way of saying that we shouldn't take it for granted. It's really nice clambering over this beach. It's still surprisingly quiet here. It's nice to escape the centre of town, which is pretty busy at the moment. But it's rained today, so everyone's cleared off and gone home. And so I get the beach all to myself, which is exactly how I like it. (sighs) I'll see you next time for the last episode of this series. And we'll be talking to Daka Keltner, who is a psychologist who researches or the emotion is so elusive in our lives. I think it's going to be a lovely way to crown off this season on how we can re-enchant this world. I'll see you then. Bye. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for being here to explore how we live now. This podcast is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. Buddy Peace also composed the wonderful incidental music. For updates, show notes, transcriptions and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at catherinemay.substack.com where you can also upgrade to support the show and join my vibrant community of readers, writers and wanderers. And finally, if you enjoyed my podcast, please consider buying my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.